Hi everybody, this is Nathaniel Avila reporting from Greater Orlando. I'm here joined with Timbrel Hildebrand from Arlington, Texas. And today we have talked about The Incredibles. Hooray, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, what did you think about this film? Oh, this film is incredible. I think, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's a really, really solid film. Not just for an animated film, but I think just for films in general. Uh, I know that this film is actually regarded to be the best, uh, one of the best animated films ever made, and the best, the absolute best film Pixar made. Would you agree with that? Uh, I'd be hesitant to put it at the top of what Pixar has made, because Pixar has made a lot of good stuff, but I definitely say it's one of their best. Oh, yeah. So, some backstory on this film is, uh, uh, the story of this film started all the way back in 1993, where uh, the director and writer of this film, Brad Bird, uh, sketched uh, the like a concept of the family of the Incredibles during like a very like unknown part of his film career. Uh, See, so he had like a lot of like personal issues that he was going through at that point in time in the 1990s. And during that time, he was working on his first ever feature film uh, with the with uh, the Warner Brothers animation called The Iron Giant. And while he was uh, he was actually going through a midlife crisis at this time, and he was thinking about maybe like he his aspirations for his filmmaking were way too high, and whether his like career goals were attainable through the price of his family life. So that's where the idea of of the themes of the incredibles sparked from uh and he imagined it as an homage to like comic book and spy films that he watched when he was a kid and he wanted it to be like a like a traditional cartoon animation uh but when he finished when when the iron giant came out uh it was a great film but it didn't do well in the box office and it didn't make a lot of money so what he ended up doing is he ended up uh, calling up his old friend, John Lasseter, who was head of, of Pixar at the time. And I think they went to school together. That's how they, they knew each other. And uh, in 2000, he pitched the idea to him. And Lasseter was like, this is great. I love it. We're going to, going to do, you got to come over to Pixar and, and do it. And then he's like, he's like, um, also, we're not going to do the whole 2D thing. We're Pixar. We don't do that. We're going to do it in computer animation. The new, this newfangled computer animation. And then that's that's what he did. He had a he got he signed a multi-film contract uh, in 2000, and he he wrote the script and then he made the film uh, like that. He came up with the ideas of. Uh, it's actually also the first ever uh, Pixar film made with an all human with all human characters in it so his idea of the uh of the um of the family and the powers that they have is that first he wanted the dad who is expected to be strong for the family so he gave him super strength and moms are always pulled in a million different directions so she made him like made her like stretch powers teenage girls are insecure and defensive these are his words not mine uh so he made her invisible and 10 year old boys are hyperactive energy has a lot of unchecked energy so he gave him like super speed and stuff and he gave uh jack jack the baby uh 
like a mishmash of powers, like a bunch of different stuff, but namely the like the idea of shape shifting, so it could like resemble uh, the numerous amount of potential babies have. So that's that's where he got the idea. So he he came to Pixar, and he was actually the first ever. Uh, he was actually the first ever director outside of Pixar to come in and join them after Pixar kind of like made its own thing. So that's where that's and he, he came in and he did that. And um let me see. Oh, and then the, he came up with the villain of Syndrome, which was originally supposed to be just like this minor character who ends up dying in the first act who basically was originally supposed to be that bomb voyage's character in the beginning, but he ends up but they ended up uh giving him the main villain role because they because he was very popular amongst the producers. So that was that. And so that was that's the entire thing. That's the history of 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 the Incredibles. Wow, yeah, that's cool. Mhm. So, okay, so what is your takeaway of the film? I think it's a very complex film for uh what was because ordinarily uh pixar has a a track record of kind of sneaking in deeper ideas into movies that would mostly be marketed towards children and i think the incredibles is a great is, i think the incredible kind of strays away from that in that its themes are a bit more overt and it's a little more mature so um i think the movie tells an excellent story of kind of like it it, it sort of asks the question, what would it really be like if superheroes were a thing? Like, in the practicality of the world, how would it really work? Wouldn't it be a, a, a pretty much a disaster? And that's kind of what they're showing here. And at the same time, they're telling, I think the, the greatest, the, the true theme of the movie is all about, I guess, valuing excellence where it, where it is, because they have that line, you know, when everyone's super, nobody will be. And, um, I think that's an interesting theme that you see throughout the throughout the movie that these individuals are very exceptional, and they're forced to hide their unique abilities. So I mean that that has a bunch of applications with you know the abilities that people have. They might not be able to jump over buildings, but sometimes people feel like their own abilities are suppressed. So I feel like it's a very interesting take on the superhero genre that hadn't been done before that time. Yeah, well, I well, people would say the Watchmen did it, uh, but not at this scale because the Watchmen movie didn't come out until two thousand seven. But th- I agree with you. This this film is very mature for a kids movie, and th- it's a kids movie that mostly fig- focuses on the adults. The kids don't even have that much screen time in the film. It's mostly following the. Uh, the midlife crisis of Bob or Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl slash Helen and their relationship and their marriage and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and w- since like it has these overtly mature messages, how would you say that how this film would compare to what we talked about last year, last week with Zootopia, where it also had mature themes, but you weren't really warmed up with to that film? Well, the thing with this film is, unlike Zootopia, it's not heavy-handed. They tell a story. Zootopia seems to rely too much on its agenda to carry along their story, whereas 
The Incredibles uses a strong story, strong foundation, strong characters to tell. Because it's not so much supporting an agenda, The Incredibles isn't. It's just telling a very deep story about family and the struggles of a family within a superhero context. So I don't think it's the same because it's not heavy-handed. It's just it's it's just telling a good story without relying on purely agenda. I agree. So like you're saying that this film focuses more on the story and the message is just like it it is like just a secondary to the story. I wouldn't say it's secondary. I just say that it I just say that the the story is ultimately what prevails. It's not it's not a story built around a message. It's a story that tells, that, that has a message encapsulated within it. It's not the same thing, I feel like. Okay, yes. So uh, what would you say to people who would compare to this film that it it it, it shows the uh, idea of cynicism in, in that, in the film? Oh, yeah. I say it definitely shows that. It shows that sort of like not wanting to believe that people are just good for the sake of being good, how they distrust the superheroes and stuff like that. So I feel like it definitely shows that level of cynicism, how they get rid of all the supers because in their efforts to, uh, in their efforts to protect the public, things go wrong. And so ultimately that makes people distrust all supers. So I think it definitely shows that level of cynicism towards people of great power who, or who are, who are seeking to do good just for the sake of doing good. No one, no one, no one is willing to believe that people are good just for the sake of being good. Oh yeah, and okay. Like another thing is like the beginning of this film. One of the major things that I noticed is that it featured a suicide attempt, and they blatantly said that it was a suicide attempt, which is something I wouldn't have expected in a in a kids film. Uh, I I never really. Th- caught that when i watched it when i was a kid i didn't realize it was a suicide attempt i thought he just oh fell. me neither i had no clue what was happening yeah i thought he just fell and i didn't get it um and so there was and then he ended up suing mr incredible for saving him on this in a uh in a suicide attempt is what do you feel about that i think it's again it's showing that kind of almost ridiculous level of cynicism in the public like this guy was literally trying to take his own life and he's suing someone from saving his life yeah and most people would not argue if you i i think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who would condemn someone who stopped someone from trying to take their own life yeah i mean in real life in like present day there are what is called good samaritan laws which means that a person cannot press charges on you if you're trying to stop them from harming themselves. Like, if I see someone running in front, trying to run in front of a moving train to in an attempt to kill themselves, and I run and I run over and like tackle him so he doesn't do that, that person cannot charge me with assault because I I saved I prevented him from taking his own life. So. I guess they don't apply in, in this particular film, but we kind of needed it to, to do like I think like it's just thing. showing that sort of legalistic nature that can come up in the midst of like a media frenzy or politics and how politics can sometimes get it backwards in a way to support their own agenda to uh, a point where it doesn't make sense Oh yeah, what they're attacking. Mm-hmm. So I know a big thing in this film is being stuck in the past, which hinders the present. What what do you think about that theme in the film? 
Oh yeah, I'd say that's a huge theme in the film. I mean, that's that's Mr. Incredible's main problem. That's his main internal conflict. He's living too much in the past, and he wants to resurrect the glory days, and he's missing out on his family that he has right here in the present. Yeah, and then he ends up trying to project his own uh, wants and needs onto his son also, and he gets kind of... That's why they had that giant fight in in, in the uh, when he came back from the burning building. And that's also when he said uh, that society is constantly trying to celebrate ways of mediocrity, but when someone's truly exceptional... Yeah, I absolutely I mean, love that that scene because that is really like that, that went totally over my head when I was a kid but now when I'm looking at it now it's such a deep concept that they're putting into this kids film and it's really not a kids film if you think about it because of these more mature themes throughout and I just think that's really interesting because they're depicting a realistic family in fantastical in a fantastical setting like that argument between you know him and Helen about him projecting himself on his kid and how, uh, yeah, celebrating mediocrity, because that drives them crazy, because in this, like, in this world that they have now, like, excellence isn't truly valued, because the supers have been suppressed. So it's interesting how he talks about that, because it still connects to today, when somehow, we, when we see that a lot in, like, uh, a lot of our own school systems and stuff like that, how mediocrity tends to be valued and excellence kind of goes unnoticed when mediocrity is valued so highly because the bar is set so low. So I thought that was that was an interesting thing that they put in there. Oh yeah, I love it because it's like the entire, that entire idea packed into one line of dialogue and that takes a lot of skill. And also, uh, the character of Syndrome, what do we think about him? Oh, Syndrome is one of the most excellent villains I've, I've ever seen. He is an excellent villain. And you see, and the reason I know he's such an excellent villain is because you can see his, like, idea of a villain copied in other recent motion pictures, like, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think it's hilarious how, like, in Iron Man 3, the bad guy in that was basically Syndrome. In uh, the most recent Spider-Man movie that came out, he was basically Syndrome. He worked for the hero, he got angry, and now he's, you know on the war path to get his revenge. I think that's interesting. And also, it's just it's a far more complex villain than you see in most animated films. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what do you think, like, this film, especially with the character of Syndrome, is trying to tell uh, about toxic fandom? Um, I mean, I think I think it's kind of more of a... It's, it's, it's a very... I don't think it's that big of a part of the movie, but I do think it's showing something about, I think it, it sums up in his line, he goes, you can't trust anyone, especially your heroes, and that kind of shows you that when you when you come to that realization that your heroes aren't necessarily as heroic as you think you, they are, you can go one of two directions. You can go away wiser and realize that, you know, it's not a good idea to idolize people because they're just people at the end of the day, or you can go the route of syndrome where you can't trust anyone, so why even try yeah, and also like he has this strange like possession over, over Mister Incredible because he believes since he is his biggest fan that he owes him like Mister Incredible owes him, uh, and that he has this twisted like possession over him, in a, in a way, and he gets really angry when he s discovers that that's not the case. So he tries, 
he dedicates his entire life to destroy to destroy him in a, like some kind of t- sense of uh of revenge yeah yeah and then like his biggest his biggest idea is to distribute his his inventions in order to make everybody super but then nobody will be super what what do you think that means Oh, that's such an excellent line. I love that line where he says, when, when everyone's super, no one will be. And it's harkening back to the line at the beginning of the movie where Dash is talking to his mom where she says, everyone's special, Dash. And he goes, well, that's just another way of saying no one is. And so it's, again, I think harkening back to the overarching theme that, like, people are special in certain ways. And when everyone is brought to that same standard, then nothing's special anymore. When everyone is exactly the same, when everything is conformed, nothing is special like the supers were suppressed so now there's no bar of excellence to aspire to because they're not they're they're, they're no longer in in action yeah because like, like they're su- yeah they're suppressed to kind of like i guess mollify the insecurities of the common man kind of yeah like also when uh, when everybody is average and then everyone is given like the resources to become above average. Well, that b- above averageness will become the new averageness because yeah, everyone's at that level. Yeah, it's a very complex idea. Yeah, it really makes you think. Uh, so, a lot of people say that this film is uh, like Ayn Randish propaganda. What do you say to that? I'm sorry. What? Everybody believes that this. A lot of people believe that this film exemplifies the idea that Ayn, that Ayn Rand had uh, in her uh, philosophy of, I believe it was called excessive individualism. I'm, I think that's what it's called. Uh, the idea of that the extraordinary is always going to be uh, suppressed and feared uh, because it is extraordinary. Yeah, I know that Brad Bird went on record saying that that wasn't his intention. I mean, honestly, I think some movies aren't quite as deep as people want to try to make them out to be. I do think there are some very deep themes in this, but I don't think it necessarily has to touch on every single base for it to be a good movie. Oh, yeah. Um, Because this film is actually really, really cool. Like, this is like, was like a superhero film made before everybody was all about superheroes and everything. And a lot of people say, like, this is, like, what a good Fantastic Four movie would be. I have heard that. <laughs> yeah. And I agree. Yeah, like, whatever would be, like, it's impossible to make a good Fantastic Four movie. And it's like, no, it's been done before. It's called The Incredibles. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, like, yeah. how do you think this, uh, uh, how would you think it would play going into the sequel? Uh yeah, because the sequel takes place right after the end of this film. I will be honest, I'm not super crazy about the Incredible sequel. I don't think it's a bad movie by any means, but I do think it's unnecessary. Like, it's an interesting idea to kind of see, like, sort of see Elastigirl kind of take the, the spotlight and see, like, kind of like how we saw her kind of struggling to juggle everything as a mom, and now we're seeing Bob struggle, every, struggle as a dad. But again, I don't 
feel like the movie is very necessary because the end of this movie, what makes it so perfect is that it's open-ended and you see this family that's united and we're like, we're not scared anymore. We're going to go take on this robot like, like it's nothing at the end of the movie. And then in the second movie, they kind of reverse that and now suddenly Elastigirl's unsure about using their powers again and, and like, Bob hasn't, and Bob is still, you know, desiring that spotlight and that sort of thing. It's like suddenly, I, I don't know, it just doesn't flow very well. So I, I like to think of this movie more as a standalone film than as the first of, like, two movies because I just think it works better as a standalone film. The way it ends feels very much kind of like a standalone film. I absolutely agree with that because I noticed that when I watched the sequel, um, all the character arcs pretty much reverse back to where it used to be in the beginning of the first one. And so uh, I noticed that, remember like in the beginning of the first film, there are these like television clips of interviews between the main three superheroes? Yes, I love that introduction. It's so interesting, I think. Yeah, and like it basically sets up each of their personalities and their conflicts throughout the rest of the film. Like in the beginning, Mr. Incredible says that he wouldn't mind settling down and having a family. And then all of a sudden he doesn't want, now that he's doing that, he does, he wants to be a superhero again. And then Elastigirl saying, says, no, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to settle down and have kids. I want to continue being a superhero, but now, yeah. What were you going to say? Sorry, no, and that's another thing, another thing that I feel like is kind of unnecessary uh, about the second Incredibles movie, because the whole idea of Incredibles 2 is to kind of show Elastigirl as a strong, you know, leading character, but I think in this movie, that this movie does that. Like, she didn't need her own movie to show how strong she was, because in this movie, you see her take pretty much everything into her own hands, and after watching it, like, this most recent time, I realized that, and it kind of made me think about how I don't really think they needed Incredible 2 to make the point that Elastigirl was a strong character, because you see that throughout this entire movie, because once, once, once Mr. Incredible screws everything up, Elastigirl basically has to come in and do damage control, and she hasn't done hero work in years, and yet she comes in and starts kicking everybody's butt, and, uh, so I think it's really interesting, because you have really two strong characters here. So that's another reason I don't feel like the second movie was really necessary. Yeah, I believe that as well. And so what do you think about the kids' roles in the film? I really like the kids' roles. I particularly like... I mean, I think the, the more interesting kid role is Violet because she represents kind of like the doubter and um, being super unsure of herself. Her arc with Elastigirl, I thought, is one of the most is one of the most heartfelt. Like honestly, uh, when I was watching it, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but not super embarrassed to say that I cheered up a little bit when, in during that scene where she leaves both the kids in the cave, and then Violet dashes out and says how she's sorry that she couldn't put a field around the the plane, and they kind of have this nice moment where Elastigirl's telling her that she can't, she she has to stop doubting herself because she has more power than she realizes. So she's the only one hindering herself. So I think Violet is a very interesting character. Dash feels a little bit more like he's just there for comic. Dash feels a little bit like he's there for comic relief, but you also see kind of that bond between him and Violet when they're fighting out in the forest, which I find really interesting because even though they're at each other's throats for most of the movie, ultimately they have each other's back. Like Dash jumps on the guy who's 
trying to shoot Violet, and then Violet jumps in front of this dude and puts up a force field without really being sure whether or not that force field's going to take those bullets that are about to be fired at them. So that's that's interesting, I think, between the two between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, Dash is definitely a static character, but uh, Violet is definitely very, very interesting to watch, especially seeing when she starts off as like a pretty shy person and then she opens up a bit comes out of her shell and becomes a bit more confident in herself and then she gets the guy hooray and and then we'll i hope i wonder how that'll turn out in the sequel 15 years later and then <laughs> and then um uh also when brad bird was asked to make the script he didn't he when he wrote it he had no idea about the limitations of 3d animation so he just wrote whatever um and instead of uh saying you got to go back and, and fix it to uh, uh, adhere to the limitations pixar was like well we have to just invent new software in order to so make these make sure these limitations are not limitations anymore starting with what like sort of limitations? wet hair is one of them that was oh, the yes, biggest the hair one. In this is incredible. Yeah. Like one is like wet hair and then there's explosions and smoke and all that kind of stuff, debris, like all that kind of things that they had to make. So how do you think they, they fared with that? Oh, definitely great. I remember even as a young kid watching this movie and finding something very appealing about the way the hair was animated. And I think it still holds up to the the kind of the standard of today. You look at their their hair, you look at it super closely, you see that it's similar to the kind of expertise in more recent movies like Frozen, where you see kind of the little frizzy hairs, the hairs that aren't quite in place, like it's not flat, it's very animated, especially um, after, like, uh, after Elastigirl and the kids fall into the water, and then they get back to the island after boating for a whole day, and their hair is kind of crazy and frizzy, that's particularly impressive, because every single one of those hair follicles has to be animated yeah uh yeah and so since brad bird based a lot of this film on his own ideas and his own feelings that he was feeling at the time do you think that elevated the story well i didn't realize that that's what um he was going through at the time but um i wouldn't be surprised if part of his projection of himself is in mr incredible oh yeah did you notice the A113 uh, yes, references? Yes, I did notice that. That's in most Pixar movies. You see that somewhere. And yeah. a couple of Disney movies, too. Yeah, and then, I, oh, yeah, it's some Marvel films, too. And I, I remember, like, when Mr. Incredible f came back to the island and Mirage was like, hey, we're going to be, we need a conference in A1. And then she's like, what room? And I was thinking, is it going to be 13? And then she's like, it's 13. I'm like, I, of course it is. And then also in the containment unit, he was if he was in containment unit A one, and then he was in section. Is it? And I was like, is it going to be in section thirteen? Oh, it was thirteen, wasn't it? That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, what do you think about the character of Mirage? Mirage, I mean, she's more of a plot point. I feel than a real character, but she's definitely important because, again, like she's kind of a plot point. She's the I guess you could say she's the weak link in Syndrome's plan because she ultimately has compassion. She's not quite as ruthless as he is. So it's ultimately 
So she ultimately, like, helped the Incredibles uh, do what they need to do to stop Syndrome. So, I mean, she's interesting enough. What we should be talking about, I think, is Edna. Edna is an incredible character. I didn't. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You know that he was, she was actually played by Brad Bird himself? Yes, and I love every minute she is on screen. She is the greatest. That's another thing that I love about this movie is that they'll poke fun at classic superhero tropes like uh, when Frozone... Oh, we haven't even talked about Frozone. But when Frozone and Mr. Incredible are in the car and they're talking, he goes, he goes, he starts monologuing. He goes, he starts monologuing. He starts this big prepared speech, you know, poking fun at how in every superhero movie the villain takes some point to explain their entire evil plan in detail to the hero while he's captured. And I found it funny when Edna made the point that, like, capes on superhero outfits are are very, um, are not practical at all. So I thought that was really interesting. And then Syndrome ends up dying because his cape sucked him into the turbine. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, I definitely, I think, I think a really interesting part that she has is, because, again, another one of these more adult themes that we see in this is, like, they're, they're clearly insinuating that Helen is afraid Bob is having an affair. Yeah. And so... I think it's very, and watching it through this time, I noticed something that I hadn't quite, like, paid attention to before, but when she's kind of, like, she's with Edna, and she's crying and stuff, she goes, oh, now I'm losing him, and then Edna freaks out and starts whacking her with the newspaper and stuff, she goes, she has this great line, she goes, you will tell, you will show him you remember he is Mr. Incredible, and you will remind him who you are, and I think that, I think Edna is a great catalyst in Elastigirl's character, because in that moment, Elastigirl remembers, oh, right, I'm a superhero, too. I'm just as tough. I'm just as, you know, uh, I, I can stand, I can, you know, make a defense to my own husband, you know, like, we're, we're equals in our marriage, so I should be able to go and, like, and basically when Edna's encouraging her to go and confront the problem, I think that's a really cool moment because you're seeing that Edna's not just this kind of goofy, eccentric uh, fashionista, but she's, she's very thoughtful and she cares about Helen and she's, she believes in Helen when Helen doesn't. So I thought, I think that's an amazing scene where, where she says that to her. Yeah, because like, that's definitely like the catalyst within uh, Helen's arc from being uh, housewife to superhero again in order to like get the confidence she needed to go and actually get uh, to get Bob and stop being more, stop being passive and being more active in, in the situation which is definitely pretty, pretty cool. Uh, and also we like, we, we learned that she's also a pilot and all that kind of stuff, which is pretty neat. Uh, yeah, like it's awesome. We see that she is just this jack of all trades. That's why I, I think this, this movie is very much about how she's strong too. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, we mentioned Frozone for a little bit. What do you think like about that whole thing with, with him? What is his deal? Oh, I absolutely love Frozone. I mean, he's definitely, he's definitely, a side character but I think he's he's a pretty cool character too for lack of a better word um but he's definitely a side character I wouldn't say he has much of an arc either but it's interesting to kind of have him be he's almost he almost acts as like a sounding board for Bob in certain scenarios like when they go out and they save people from the burning building you know you're seeing that he's a bit more hesitant to do these things but he's giving in to his friend's kind of delusion of grandeur. But yeah, he's a really fun character. I think some some characters like the 
main characters, I say they're more about development and stuff like that. We learn more about them. Frozone is fairly, um, while he's a fun character, I wouldn't say he's the most complex because he's, he's kind of strictly there to be um, Bob's friend. Kind yeah. of like that's his role. He's Bob's friend. But he's really, it's really cool to see him. And I mean, of course, he has the scene that is, you know, beloved by all. And I highly doubt Brad Bird intended the where's my super suit scene to be such a gem in this otherwise gem of a movie. But um, yeah, Frozen's a lot of fun. I, I absolutely adore Frozen. He's fun. Yeah, he's also like, he definitely plays the voice of reason to Bob. By saying like, "Hey, dude, we probably shouldn't be doing this and sneaking around our wives' back because that's not cool." And another thing is that in the beginning, when he was being interviewed, he has like he expresses like some kind of like distrust of only dating superhero superhero women. That was his thing. And then we later learn that he's actually dating another a human woman without any superpowers. So I guess that's his. That was his arc. Well, I mean, we don't actually know that. We just know he's married. That's all That's all we know. We really don't know who she is. Maybe we will find out in Incredibles 3. Oh, let's hope not. <laughs> okay. All right. So any last thoughts about Incredibles? No, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Would you recommend it? Oh, definitely. For uh, sure. All right. I give. I would give it a 10 out of 10. What would you give it? I, I think I'd give it a 10 out of 10, too. And I don't give those very lightly. So, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yay. All right, so that's that. That was The Incredibles. Uh, I've been Nathaniel Avila. This has been Timbrel Hildebrand, and we'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye.